0: Being the best at whatever talent you have, that is what stimulates life. This is a quote from Tom Landry. Landry. Um, you know, famous football coach. It's not just Landry. Professional sports have put being the best in the spotlight in our society. To me, being the best means proving it in different countries and championships. That's Ronaldo. My motivation is being the best, pretty simple and straightforward. That's Brian Shaw. He's a strong man. I'm focused on being the best in making history. That's Canelo Alvarez, a boxer. It's not just sports. I could dig everywhere. There's lots of quotes from successful people about the importance of being or striving to be the very best. Performers, business moguls, just good people. Our culture is obsessed with being our best selves. Even when we don't feel like we're being our best selves, we we are obsessed with watching other people be their best selves. What can we accomplish? What I can do if I just put my mind to it? And along with that obsession comes, I think, a deep distaste and avoidance for weakness. Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians as a man who grew up primed for an exceptionalist society like our own. Back then, when he was called Saul, uh, he was, you know, as we like to say, he was the goat. He was the greatest of all time. He was renowned, he was brilliant. He was a good man, like very well versed in the law. He was a leader of the Pharisees. He was the best of the best in Jewish society. And he was a fully-fledged Roman citizen to boot. I bet he was handsome, too. He's just one of those guys. You know those guys. They can do no wrong. They achieve everything that they set their mind to it. They're just better than everybody else. And Paul hated weakness. He hated failure to live up to the standards of his world. And to that end, when he was Saul, he persecuted the followers of this new heretical sect of Judaism, these people who followed Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But if you know Paul's story, You know that one day on a road outside of Damascus, well, he's actually on his way to teach some weak Christians a lesson. Everything changed for Paul. He was ambushed by Jesus himself. Appearing to him as a great, light, knocking him to the ground, blinding him for days. And at that moment, Saul, the exceptional, the successful, the everything he touched turned to gold and probably handsome to boot, became Paul. Well, let's just say he was in for some more difficult times. He was blind, like right off the bat. Here's some difficulty. Blind and at the mercy of those he had been persecuting. And then he's sent by God into these really dangerous places where they never even heard of Jesus. Like, these are not the A-leagues of Christianity. He's regularly at odds with others in the church. He himself is persecuted, chased out of towns, Nearly stoned to death, arrested countless times, shipwrecked and shipwrecked and shipwrecked. And at the time that he wrote this letter, he's in prison, awaiting the judgment of the emperor himself. Paul had the distinction after his conversion of being this incredibly gifted man who was regularly ministering the gospel, specifically out of his weakness. and today you and i in our exceptionalism need to hear what paul frantically and passionately here tells the ephesian church about the weakness that he is experiencing today's passage is a strange one grammatically it's all over the place of all of paul's like difficult grammatical sentences this one this is a doozy it's really a rabbit trail. that He goes on seemingly out of nowhere. It's messy, grammatically and thematically. A lot of preachers just skip it. Like, honestly, you go look at sermon series through here, there's often a gap right here. See, at verse 1, Paul is beginning his prayer, and all of Paul's letters have a prayer. Therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of the Gentiles, and he's about to pray, and then he stops. He's about to, he's about to give us this prayer that we should expect. Therefore, in light of all he said in his introduction, right, that he's going to pray for the Gentiles in light of this power that God has that's greater than all the powers that oppress them, in light of the fact this power is exemplified in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to pray in light of the fact that because of this power, the Ephesians are resurrected and reconciled and remade. But then there's this dash in our text, and that dash is there in the Greek as well, where Paul gets sidetracked by something, and he actually won't return to the prayer until verse 14. What's going on? Is Paul just incredibly ADHD? I mean, I like to think that. It makes me feel better. And I think it actually kind of explains all the run-on sentences that Paul likes to use, just... Just a note. Maybe he's having one of these moments where we're about to pray and then we get distracted by, you know, anything. Or maybe it's the Holy Spirit. I mean, regardless of the rest, that's got to be the case. So here's my take when I look at this. Paul's starting to pray in prison (laughs) and he names that reality. And as we'll see, he actually names the reality that he's in prison with confidence. He sees it as proof of all that he said, but he realizes in this moment that those Christians struggling in Ephesus who feel the oppression of the powers of the world and the devil and the flesh, they might see Paul's imprisonment as proof that these powers are winning. They so might feel that his imprisonment is the victory of particularly the world and its division and enmity. I mean, he's in prison in Rome, awaiting Caesar's judgment. They might see this as, as a victory of the devil those powers that are greater than us, those spirits that a good Ephesian would have been making sacrifice to in order to stay out of this kind of trouble. They may even see this as a victory of the flesh because perhaps Paul's in prison because of his failures. Either moral failures, as some of his opponents would say, or just his inability to minister in a way that would avoid such ridiculous suffering. And I think as Paul starts to pray and he names his imprisonment, an imprisonment which he sees is in Christ and on behalf of the Gentiles, he sees that this might be a discouragement. And so he stops his prayer And he goes into this passionate rabbit trail that actually contains a second passionate rabbit trail. Because this kind of rambling, this kind of disjointed, grammatically difficult rant, this is always a sign of passion. Let me tell you, when I get a text or an email and it looks like this, there's always something big going on. (laughs) it breaks down awkwardly. Verse 2 is this conditional phrase. It says, if you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, if you have heard of my ministry to you and to the other Gentiles. And then verses 3 through 12 is another rabbit trail talking all about his ministry. And then finally in verse 13, he gets back To the second part of his conditional statement, do not lose heart over what I am suffering. And verses 2 and 13, if you take them out by themselves, this is the heart of what he's saying here. If you understand the gospel and what I have been called to, you can't be discouraged by my suffering and my weakness. That's the heart of this passage. The rest of it is great. But it's another rabbit trail. Paul wants the Ephesians to be okay with Paul's apparent weakness under the oppression of the world and the devil and the flesh. These same powers that oppress them. In fact, Paul wants them to celebrate in his suffering as part of the work that Jesus Christ is doing. And that's just dumb. I mean, come on. That makes no sense. Especially not in our exceptionalist culture. And I guarantee you, if Ephesus was an exceptionalist culture of its own. And I and I said earlier in the outset of the series, when I say culture, I don't just mean out there. I mean our culture in here as well. I'm not excluding the church. We're absolutely wrapped up in our own version of worldly culture. And it shows up right here, actually. The American church is as exceptionalist as they come. Because we know that God calls us to be strong, He calls us to be warriors, to be our best selves. So, how can Paul celebrate this grossest of evils, the oppression of the gospel? by secular worldly powers, by Satan and his evil influences, and by Paul's own human weakness, how can he call that good? And not to pick on our culture in particular, though that's who I'm called to minister to, so maybe I should. I think the church in Ephesus had the same hangup, so we do. They were concerned by weakness. They were afraid of suffering. They were victims of the powers of the world and the devil and the flesh. So they ask, how can this be good? So Paul tells us, if you know, he says, if you know the gospel that I am a minister to, then you will see the beauty in my suffering. And he proceeds to make a case for his own weakness and suffering. First, he highlights the amazing grace that he is a steward to, speaking of his ministry and the gospel he serves in verses 3 to 7. Verse 3, he reminds us of the story of his conversion the powerful revelation of the mystery, that redemptive plan of God and Jesus Christ. He reminds us of that day that he was a witness to Christ's glory on the road to Damascus. Verse 4, he turns to the ministry itself, the insights that he has been given into this mystery by God. And he calls them to scrutinize his message, and see that his message is strong. Verse five, he turns to the, revel- the revelation of this mystery, the gospel, and the scriptures. Remember the apostles and the prophets. That's just Paul talk for the scriptures. In Jesus Christ himself, because it's Jesus that separates the way the sons of men in other generations understood the scriptures and the way that it is, has now been revealed through the lens of his life, death, and resurrection. And then in verse six, he speaks of what the mystery is itself, especially concerning those in Ephesus, that the blessing of the covenant of grace, resurrection, reconciliation, and this remade community, that it's for the Gentiles also, in Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, if Paul were just talking about this mystery and how he's been called to be a part of it, we could read this as more exceptionalism. I, Paul, was called, above all others, to steward God's mystery of grace But Paul is insistent to show that his ministry of the gospel is not a story of exceptionalism, but a story of his own weakness. And it's least throughout verses 3 through 7 for those who know Paul's story and the message of the gospel. The story of his conversion is a story of God's power and Paul's weakness, is it not? Knocked on his backside, blinded, proven that he is so wrong about who God is and then handed over blind to the mercy of the people he had been persecuting and killing. That's weakness. His ministry, if we know the story, was a story of weakness and suffering as well. Not only in the tremendously difficult, humiliating, and dangerous events of his ministry, But also because the message that he complained, that he proclaimed, was constantly, constantly painting himself in the worst light. Romans 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. 1 Timothy 1, he says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about a thorn that was given me in the the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me. But to explicitly highlight his weakness here, and God's tremendous grace and his calling, he punctuates it all in verses 7 through 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Paul names himself, actually, if we wanted to translate it directly, as the very leastest. It's a grammatical train wreck. That's passion. the leastest of all the saints. Paul's contention is not that he is exceptional, though at one point in his life he would claim this. It's not that he was chosen because he was a scholar of the Old Testament and therefore would be well trained to deliver this intelligent and persuasive appeal to the gospel. It's not because he was well-renowned as a Jew and a Roman citizen, giving him unprecedented access. It's not because of anything he has to offer. God called Paul, the least of all the saints, the most wretched of all sinners, the foremost of them, in his weakness, to minister his great Mystery of grace to the Gentiles. In fact, because of his weakness, God chooses to use weakness. And in Paul's suffering, which he sees as a blessing, his weakness compared to the powers of the world and the devil and the flesh, he sees as a blessing. His imprisonment, not of worldly Caesar, but to Christ, is a testimony of the weakness of his flesh. He is the least after all. And in that, it's a testimony to the power of God, not a victory of the devil. But actually, Paul tells us here in some really strange language, hard to wrap our heads around. Actually, Paul's weakness becomes a testimony to Satan himself of the power and might of God. And yeah, that sounds insane. And if it wasn't explicit in our text, I don't know that I could say it. But Paul says that this whole point, the whole point of this cold and weakness thing is right here. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Rulers and authorities points back to chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul named all those spirits and gods and devils that were so important to the Ephesian society. There he claims that Jesus is seated above them, that he's more powerful than than them. And here, Paul claims that it is explicitly through the church that these powers see the truth of Christ's authority. And again, out of context, this could be exceptionalism. We need to be the best. And as the best, we give the righteous middle finger to the devil and company. But that misses the context. The church that Paul speaks of is made up of people like the Ephesians. People who struggle daily with the stubborn influence of these power. People like us, who struggle, struggle as much as they do, who are just as weak as they are. A church led by people like Paul, who is the worst, he says. And as someone who has somehow been called into leadership, I will tell you that the leadership of the church has not improved since Paul's day. It is this weak and suffering church that provides the glory and power of, provides the glory to God. God's power is on display here. A church that continues to struggle under the oppression of the world and the devil and the flesh that they're supposed to be free from. A church of saints who know themselves to be the least. This is who God chooses. Because our victory will never be through our own power. It's very clear. It requires a power that is not only greater than all others, but actually is so great it can carry weak people like Paul, weak churches like Ephesus, weak people like us. It can carry us to victory. Because the mystery of grace is stewarded by misfits like Paul and therefore spread from Jerusalem. To Samaria, to the ends of the earth, by God's power itself, by the power of the gospel itself, not by Paul. Paul's contention, then, is that his imprisonment is in in service to Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, and it is proof of the gospel. not simply because it is in service to the gospel and the Gentile church that Paul is imprisoned, prison, but because in his weakness, God's power and glory and his grace in choosing the leastest of all, Paul, they're emphasized in Paul's weakness. And in connection, he hopes the Ephesians will see, he hopes we will see, that any suffering they encounter, any opposition in front of them, any seemingly unsurpassable obstacles, even their own weakness and struggle, are opportunities for the power of God in his gospel of grace to be seen more clearly. Here's what one commentator says. Paul's imprisonment, then, is in, no, it, in no way hinders the ministry but actually serves to magnify the triumph of God because God accomplishes his purposes in weakness. The existence of the church, which Paul has helped to create through the preaching of the gospel, serves as witness to the hostile principalities and powers of the triumph of God. Paradoxically, the church is established by weak people who suffer and find themselves facing seemingly insurmountable constraints. And it's in the light of these insurmountable constraints that the power of the gospel is seen. And this idea isn't unique to Ephesians. Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then a little later, he says in 2 Corinthians, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In fact, Paul suggests here that this has always been the plan. He says this was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We could go down a whole rabbit trail about the plan and foreknowledge of God and what it means in terms of the fall and redemption, etc. I don't think this is the point. The point is that always, even at the very beginning of the garden, even at the very end in eternity, when those times when we aren't weak or our weakness has melted away, we were made and intended to do our work of rule and ministry in this world via the power of God alone. The same power that we have access to in our weakness. In fact, in our fallen and rebellious state, It is only in an honest acknowledgement of our weakness that we reach for this power and that we lean into Jesus Christ. So, Paul wants the Ephesians to know, in the midst of their weakness, that God called him to minister to them because of his own weakness. And in that call, he put Paul in places where his weakness would be exposed. In places where his weakness meant suffering, insecurity, and maybe even death. A real possibility for Paul as he writes this letter. And through his weakness, God is glorified and the gospel of Jesus is known. Because that ministry that Paul was made a steward of, that you and I are also stewards of in our weakness... That is the incomparable power of God that accomplishes his greatest work, the ultimate display of his power, not in a traditionally strong act, but in the act of restoring weak and broken things. Not in creation, but in recreation. Resurrection of the dead, reconciliation of broken relationships, reformation of a new temple. Actually, it's a power that is manifested not in a mighty violent conquest, but in his own bloody death on the cross. God proved his strength by taking on our weakness, by coming and living and suffering in the flesh, by being scorned and rejected and abused by the world, and by dying, surrendering surrendering to the ultimate power of the devil, which is death. And in this weakness, he proves his strength. And in his gracious calling of men, women, and children who could never earn a place in his new kingdom to be resurrected and reconciled and remade, shows his power through us. So Paul says don't lose heart. If you know then you can't lose heart in my suffering. If you know then you can't lose heart in your own suffering and your own weakness. If you know You can't lose heart even when it seems the way forwards is impossible because it's in these very places that the power of God and the grace of Jesus Christ are seen. So take heart. In fact, rejoice. His grace is sufficient for you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you thank you that you have chosen to make your power known through weakness, because if it, that wasn't the case, we'd be lost. That you have called weak and broken men, women, and children like us into your kingdom. We pray, God, that you would make your power known through our weakness. That you would make it known to us <laughs> through our weakness, but also to our neighbors. That your love, your grace, that your gospel would be seen specifically because it is so much greater than anything we could offer ourselves. Pray these things. Let's say, if you your glory and your kingdom in the name of your son. Amen.